Well, it's close to 3 o'clock, so I think we'll go ahead and get started. Um, thanks to all of you for coming out for our Read Aloud this week. And thank you to the Wexner Center for hosting us. Um, I'm very happy to welcome David Weaver, who's um, come to us today. He's um, from the Ohio Anna Library. And uh, in addition to being an author, David has uh, performed more than 20 different roles professionally in opera and musical theater. Uh, next weekend, he'll be at the Palace Theater on February 9th and 11th, playing the role of Baron Zeta in the opera production of uh, Columbus Opera production of The Merry Widow. Um, David's well known for his many appearances on WOSU radio and television. And today, he shares with us his work in researching and writing the extraordinary story of Ruby Elsie. Um, she, his book's called Black Diva of the 30s, and if you haven't taken a look at it, it's really nice. Um, and we do have it in the library collection. So please join me in welcoming David Weaver. Thank you, Donna. <clears throat> Thank you, um, I appreciate it. Uh, I don't know how many of you before today had heard of Ruby Elsie. Well, several of you have. Well, I have to admit that when I, uh, and you know, my background is in opera and musical theater, I had never heard of her. And I thought maybe one of the things to share with you early on from my book was how exactly I came into becoming interested in this story. Uh, because I find that that's a question people frequently ask me. How did you get involved in somebody you know who died so many years ago that is basically unknown? So in my preface to the book, I tell how that came about and I thought that would be a good place to start. The genesis of this book goes back to April 1998. I was working for WOSU, the public broadcasting stations of Ohio State University. At a luncheon for our new classical music station in Marion, Ohio, I was seated next to a charming woman named Madge Cooper Guthrie. Despite her silver hair and 60-plus year career in broadcasting in Marion, she's known as the First Lady of Radio, Madge had considerably more vigor and vitality than people half her age at the luncheon. Talking together, Madge and I found we shared common interests not only in broadcasting but opera and theater. I told her I had been studying voice since the age of 18, including a year spent at the University of Cincinnati where one of my classmates was the noted black soprano Kathleen Battle. It was then that Madge asked me a 10-word question that was to have a profound effect on my life. Have you ever heard of a singer named Ruby Elsie? No, I haven't, I replied. Who was she? Madge told me that Elsie had been a classmate of hers, a 1930 graduate of Ohio State who had gone on to Juilliard. Elsie had won fame as the original Serena in George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, but her promising career as an operatic soprano had been cut short when she died tragically at a young age. Exactly how she died, Madge did not know. But she did recall everyone just loved Ruby, and she had one of the most beautiful voices I ever heard. As it so happened, the 1937 Gershwin Hollywood Memorial Bowl concert in which Elsie had sung had just been released for the first time on CD. Intrigued by what Madge had told me, I bought a copy. Listening to Elsie sing My Man's Gone Now, the dramatic and difficult song that she had introduced in Porgy and Bess, I was stunned. Yes, her voice was indeed beautiful, vibrant, and expressive, but there was something more. I had never heard a voice exactly like it. I was hooked. 
Little did I know that Madge Guthrie's question that spring day in Marion was going to set me off in one of the greatest adventures of my life. I eagerly began researching the life and career of Ruby Elsie, a task that would take me more than five years to complete, and I really believe I am not through yet, and I'm not. Even though she was famous at the time of her death in 1943, the passage of time had relegated mention of her to mostly a line or two, a paragraph at most, in books about Porgy and Bess or the American theater. Unlike her more well-known contemporaries, Marian Anderson and Paul Robeson, Elsie had no permanent archive where voluminous materials are centrally housed and extensively cataloged, as there are for Anderson and Robeson. A major part of the problem was that what information there was about Elsie was widely scattered. It took a great deal of slow and painstaking effort, the help and guidance of many people across the country, and oftentimes just plain good luck over the course of five years to uncover what, in the end, was a wealth of material. But I wanted more than facts, names, dates, and places. I wanted to discover and reveal the personal side of Ruby Elsie. I wanted to show her, not just as a gifted artist, but as a woman, a black woman, at a time in America when there were limited opportunities for both. Fortunately, I was able to interview more than a dozen people who had known her personally, friends, family, and neighbors from Mississippi, classmates from Russ College at Ohio State, including Madge, even fellow performers. Included in this latter group were the two remarkable women who played Gershwin's best between 1935 and 1943, Anne Brown, Elsie's friend and Juilliard classmate who created the role in 1935, and Etta Moten Barrett, who followed Brown as Bess in 1942. Their recollections of Ruby, Elsie, Gershwin, and Porgy and Bess were invaluable. My two biggest strokes of good luck came a few months apart. In the spring of 1999, I learned that Ruby Elsie's two sisters, Dr. Amanda Elsie and Wayne Elsie Bankhead, were still living together in retirement in Columbus, Mississippi. That August, I visited them for the first time. Over the course of two days I spent with them, I recorded nearly four hours of conversations that shed tremendous light on Ruby, their parents, their experiences growing up as black children in Jim Crow, Mississippi, and their own remarkable lives as educators. Their help, particularly in giving permission for me to obtain certain records that otherwise I could not have gained access to, was indispensable. Sadly, Wayne died in April of 2000 at the age of 87. I have continued to visit Amanda each year since. And a post note here, Amanda died in February of 2004, six months before the book was released. So both the Ruby sisters who had helped me so much, neither of them lived to see the book actually in print, but they knew that it was coming. A few months after returning from my first trip to Mississippi, I located the family of Dr. C.C. McCracken, the man who discovered Ruby Elsie at Rust College in 1927 and brought her to Ohio State. When I first made contact with them, all four of Dr. McCracken's children, Janet, Bill, Mary Ruth, and Ed were living within a few miles of each other in the Northwest Florida Panhandle. Regrettably, Mary Ruth died before my first visit in July 2000. But I was fortunate to be able to meet and spend time with the other three siblings who were an incredible source of help and information. Remembering their father and their close family relationship with Ruby Elsie was a true labor of love, for as they all told me, Ruby was just like a member of our family. Regrettably, both Bill and Janet have since passed on. Their younger brother, Ed, is the last of Dr. McCracken's children remaining alive. He just turned 85, by the way. 
The family historian Ed has been an enthusiastic supporter and mentor from this project from the outset. His devoted wife Ruth has been a great help organizing materials and compiling for me a veritable treasury of Ruby Elsie resources. Among them, a collection of more than 50 letters spanning a 35-year period between Ruby, her mother, and Dr. McCracken and others who were integral to Ruby's life and career. Ed and Ruth McCracken also provided, we, provided me with photographs, many of them personally inscribed Ruby, and copies of programs from nearly all of her major performances, including her town hall debut recital, her White House concert, and the productions of Porgy and Bess and John Henry. Most importantly, Ed and Ruth gave me a 55-page manuscript, the beginnings of a biography that Dr. McCracken was writing himself in the early 1950s. Working closely with Ruby's mother, Emma, Dr. McCracken had written a detailed account of Ruby's life from her birth in 1908 to her admission in Juilliard in 1930 that would have been impossible for me to obtain otherwise. Heart disease forced Dr. McCracken to put the project aside incomplete in 1953. For more than four decades after his death in 1957, the manuscript and 20 pages of his research notes were stored in a number of boxes in Mary Ruth's garage. This material was uncovered for the first time in the spring of 2000. I'm grateful to Ed and Ruth for generously giving me permission on behalf of the McCracken family to freely utilize this material in the writing of my book. In several instances, I have reconstructed personal thoughts, conversations, and incidents in Ruby Elsie's life. In every case, these reconstructions are based on my interviews with her family and friends, from their correspondence, from Dr. McCracken's manuscripts and notes, and from Ruby's own personal writings. Hopefully, in the end, I have achieved my goal to make this story more than a recitation of facts or a scholarly but distant treatment of its subject. I hope that I have created for you, the reader, a candid and intimate portrayal of a beautiful and gifted individual who deserves to be rediscovered and remembered as one of the extraordinary women of her time, Ruby Elsie. So there you have a little bit of how it happened, what brought me to the story, and, and again, the fortuitous circumstances which, which uh, helped me to uncover all of this material. And uh, so as I began to tell Ruby's story, I decided to start with her 1937 concert at the White House, where she sang at the invitation of Eleanor Roosevelt. And this was, by the way, a year and a half before the famous Lincoln Memorial concert that Marian Anderson gave when the Daughters of the American Revolution refused permission for her to sing at Constitution Hall, and so Eleanor Roosevelt arranged um, to have her sing at the Lincoln Memorial. So Ruby's performance of the White House actually predated that by a year and a half. And again, it was evidence of the commitment that Eleanor Roosevelt had to advancing black. She was one of the true champions of civil rights at that point. But the thing is about Ruby Elsie's story is here was this little girl from this rural town, Pontotoc, Mississippi, born in 1908, Jim Crow, Mississippi. Opportunities were severely limited for blacks. And for this young girl, abandoned her and her three siblings and her mother, abandoned by her father when she was only five years of age. For her to have overcome the obstacles she did and to pursue this dream of being an opera singer, what an audacious ambition for a young girl. Sorry, I was curving on my testing. Right. <laughs> I'll put my book on this side. Um, for her to have that ambition and for her, for her to be able to fulfill it, 
was an incredible story. And it all did happen because her mother was a woman of great faith and work. Ruby had as her best friend a young girl whose mother was the local piano teacher, a white girl. And Ruby listened to an operatic recording by the great Italian soprano Amalita Gallicurci. And she listened to this young friend's mother talk about going to see a concert, an opera in Memphis. And her description of it so filled Ruby with desire. She just ran home and told her mother, Mama, that's what I want to do. But she said, almost immediately catching herself, you know, but I realized that's just something too much for a young colored girl to hope for in Mississippi. And her mother said, Ruby, if God has given you a talent, he'll find a way. He'll open the door for you to use that talent. So you just keep praying and keep working and someday it's going to happen. Well, and in fact, it did happen. Ruby went to Russ College at that point in Mississippi. Education for blacks stopped at the fifth grade. So, so blacks had public school education through the fifth grade and that was it. If you were going to take junior high, high school, etc., you had to go generally to a religious institution and that's what Ruby Elsie did. She went to Rust College, which despite its name also had a high school program that had been started by the Methodist Church for blacks just a year after the Civil War. And that's where Ruby went at the imploring of her mother. She attended, uh, her mother paid $10 a month for her tuition. She worked her way through working uh, in the kitchen, washing tablecloths, which we'll hear a little bit more about later. And uh, she started singing there and thinking about this dream of being a singer. And as it just so happened, in 1927, two gentlemen came on a study for the federal government of black schools throughout the South. One of them was Dr. C.C. McCracken, Charles Chester McCracken from Ohio State, who was a noted educational expert, was a professor of school administration here at OSU. He is not the McCracken people have asked me before. There's a McCracken Hall. He is not the one for whom McCracken Hall is named. There is another gentleman not even related to the same family who was an engineer for whom McCracken Hall is named. But I thought I would read you a little bit about how Ruby got discovered at Russ College in the spring of 1927. Ruby had, uh, had just talked to the president of Russ College, Dr. C, uh, Dr. Lucius McCoy, and had told her about her dream to be a singer. And Dr. McCoy said, you know, well, I'm going to pray for you, Ruby, and hopefully something will happen. Um, because he knew that her dream to be a singer was next night to impossible. So, no one knew it, but the answer to Ruby's and Dr. McCoy's prayer was already in the making. It would come in the form of yet another two white men from the north. Two men had heard her sing in Memphis and had promised to do great things for her, and then she never heard from them again, so she was bitterly disappointed. The two men were not on a trip to find new musical talent, but instead were two educators on assignment to help black schools throughout the South. One of these men would become Ruby Elsie's greatest friend, mentor, and champion. Dr. Charles Chester McCracken, known as C.C., was a native of Bell Fountain, Ohio, born in 1882. A graduate of Monmouth College in Illinois, he had gone to get his master's and doctor degrees from Harvard. He had moved successfully through a number of teaching and administrative positions at schools and colleges in Illinois and Ohio, and since 1919 had served as professor of school administration at Ohio State University in Columbus. That was before they started saying the Ohio State University. <laughs> By 1927, he was a nationally recognized authority on the subject of educational organization and management. 
When the U.S. Office of Education appointed a commission to study Negro schools and colleges in the South, Dr. McCracken was a natural choice. He would join Dr. Walter John, an administrator from the OE's headquarters in Washington, visiting 60 schools over a two-month period and making a final report by June 30, 1927. Russ College was one of the final stops on the itinerary. By the time McCracken and John arrived in Holly Springs in mid-May, they had already been on the road six weeks and had visited more than 50 schools. It was a tedious and tiring routine of catching trains, visits to one campus after another, meetings with teachers and administrators, followed by nights sitting up in small hotel rooms or boarding houses, discussing and comparing notes on what they'd seen and heard during the day. McCracken and John arrived at Russ College and were shown into Dr. McCoy's office. They pulled out the 60-page questionnaire which Dr. McCoy had sent to Washington and began carefully to review it. The questionnaire was an integral part of the evaluation that, together with their site inspection, would help them to make recommendations on Russ's behalf. Going over the long form took time, and as the morning wore on, it became quite warm, typical for May in Mississippi. The windows in Dr. McCoy's office were open and sounds from outside could be heard. One sound in particular became more and more distinctive, a sound that captured the attention of the three men. It was a beautiful soprano voice singing the old Negro spiritual, Steal Away to Jesus. Dr. McCracken would later recall that Dr. John grew increasingly irritated, finally threw down his pencil and said, Dr. McCoy, either we make that girl shut up or we bring her in here to sing for us. <laughs> Dr. McCoy laughed. That's Ruby Elsie, one of our students. She's always singing. In fact, she's upstairs right now practicing for a program. Would you like to hear her? McCracken and John agreed at once, and official work was put aside to go to the auditorium just above McCoy's office. Ruby was on stage with a violinist and a pianist and the Russ College male vocal quartet. They were getting ready for a school program the coming weekend. Ruby, uh, McCoy said, Ruby, these two gentlemen are from visiting the campus and heard you from my office. They'd like to listen to your rehearsal, if you don't mind. Ruby smiled and said, not at all, Dr. McCoy. Her smile and warmth struck an instant chord with McCracken. The three men took seats halfway back in the auditorium, and McCoy gave the signal for them to begin. begin. McCracken and John, expecting to hear a Negro spiritual, were amazed when Ruby began to sing the Inflammatus, a Latin liturgical piece that was vocally demanding. She sang it with ease, then several other classical songs before finally singing several spirituals. In all, she sang nine numbers. Dr. McCracken later recalled that they moved to several different locations in the auditorium, and although Ruby's voice was not especially big, she had no trouble filling the large hall with her sound. The two men thanked Ruby and left the auditorium with McCoy. They couldn't believe that they had heard such a voice in this small black school in the Deep South. McCoy invited them to lunch. The entire conversation revolved not around the survey, but around Ruby Elsie. McCoy shared the story of Ruby's background, how well she had done in Rust at the eight years she had been there, about the mother determined to help her daughter get an education, and especially, especially, of Ruby's dream to become a singer. McCoy told them, we don't have the kind of program at Rust to help Ruby realize her ambition. Perhaps you two gentlemen could do something. But neither McCracken nor John had the connections or the money to help Ruby. They were educators, not agents or promoters. The three men went back to Rust and finished work on the questionnaire by early evening. That night at the hotel, McCracken and John once again talked about the young black girl with a phenomenal voice and the burning desire to sing.
What a shame, nothing could be done to help such a gifted talent. Ruby Elsie seemed destined to remain in Mississippi, her dream of a career as a singer unfulfilled, like the dreams of so many other young blacks in the South. But now Ruby had an ally in C.C. McCracken, not someone who shrank away from challenges. McCracken was a man of high moral purpose and most of all, a true educator who believed that everyone had potential and had the God-given right to develop it. In his hotel room that night, McCracken found it difficult to sleep. Surely, he thought, no one would be given such a gift if they were not meant to use it. Dr. McCracken knew that Ruby Elsie deserved an opportunity and that it was up to him to help her. Exactly how he would do that, he hadn't yet figured out. He rose early the next day and called Dr. McCoy to see if he could arrange another meeting with Ruby that morning. Dr. McCoy agreed, and when McCracken arrived in the president's office, Ruby was waiting for him. They talked a few minutes, and then McCracken asked her, Ruby, can you sing a lullaby for me or something from your childhood? Ruby replied, Dr. McCracken, we didn't sing lullabies when I was little, but I would like to sing a song my grandmother, who was born a slave, taught me. She then proceeded to sing the old spiritual, by and by, I'll lay down this heavy load. Once again, her voice, her expressiveness moved McCracken, just as they had done the day before. McCracken said, Ruby, if I could arrange it, would you be willing to come north to Ohio State to study and develop your voice? I don't have the money to pay for your training myself, but maybe I could interest others if you're willing to work hard and make some sacrifices. Ruby looked him squarely in the eyes and said, Dr. McCracken, I don't even know if I do have a good voice. But if I do, I would be willing to make any discreet sacrifice in order to improve it. McCracken did not know then what Ruby meant. A few years later, he learned about the two promoters from New York who had hurt her in Memphis and their failed promises that had caused her hurt and embarrassment. She was not going to make that mistake again. Ruby did sense this time that things were different. She felt at ease with McCracken and felt confident that he was a man of his word. By the time they parted company had been agreed, Ruby would talk to her mother and the officials at Rust, while Dr. McCracken would go back to Columbus and lay the initial work to bring her to Ohio State University. I uh, don't have either of the spirituals which Ruby Elsie sang um, for Dr. McCracken that first day, but I do want to play for you just as an introduction one of the songs that she was very known for, and it's one of the great uh, uh, Negro spirituals, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. And this is actually from a radio broadcast that Ruby Elsie did in February 1937, 70 years ago this month, just a few weeks after she had done a triumphal concert at Ohio State University. She had gone to Ohio State, graduated from here, went to Juilliard, became a star on Broadway in Porgy and Bess, and afterwards, Ohio State asked her if she would come back and do a concert. So she came back in January 1937, sang at University Hall, not the current one there, which is a replica, but the original University Hall in what was then known as the Chapel, which was where they did many concerts. And this particular song, this particular spiritual, Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, was one of her encores. So here you'll actually hear the voice of Ruby Elsie, introduced by a gentleman, by the way. And the gentleman who accompanies her at the piano, piano Arthur Kaplan, was also the gentleman who played for her, for her here at Ohio State just a few weeks before. So, so a little introduction to the voice of Ruby Elsie. Ruby Elsie, accompanied at the piano by Arthur Kaplan, 
sings a typically expressive Negro spiritual titled, Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child. So, Ruby has this chance to come to Ohio State. She convinces her mother. In fact, her mother's somewhat reluctant uh, to do it until Ruby writes the letter and said, Mama, you said God would open the door for me. Now that he has, are you going to kick it shut or will you let me go? <laughs> well, her mother couldn't argue with that. And she knew that she had to uh, let her daughter take advantage of this opportunity. Ruby had to travel with a, one of the headmistresses from Rust College who was coming home for the summer to Mansfield, Ohio, where she was from, because at that time, blacks were not allowed to ride on trains in the South, unless they were the servants of white people. So Ruby came north acting as the maid to the headmistress from Rust College. So, uh, so here's the last paragraph of the first chapter is, the train pulled slowly out of the station Soon, the town of Holly Springs was out of sight. Ruby Elsie glanced out the windows. The Mississippi countryside went rushing by. She was on her way north to a new place, a new adventure. She did not know what to expect when she got to Columbus, but she was, she was excited and unafraid. Whatever lay ahead, Ruby had faith that somehow, some way, she was on the path God had meant her to take, just as Mom had promised. The door had opened. Chapter 2 is called Stumbling Upward. 
and I thought particularly I would read this because this is about Ruby coming to Ohio State. By the time C.C. McCracken returned to Columbus in early June, nearly a month had passed since the trip to Russ College. The tour of New York colleges and schools had been completed and the report submitted. As soon as he was back home, Dr. McCracken told his wife, Cleo, about Ruby Elsie, the young black woman gifted with a beautiful soprano voice whom he hoped to bring to study at Ohio State. Since Ruby knew no one in Columbus, she would have to stay at least initially with the McCrackens. If everything worked out as planned and Ruby was admitted to Ohio State, Dr. McCracken would help her find a permanent home with a black family. Dr. McCracken and Dr. McCoy had agreed that if Ruby failed to pass her preliminary test, she would be sent home at once. But that posed a dilemma. There was no money for a return ticket, and there would be no one to accompany Ruby back to Columbus. The first few days and weeks Ruby spent in Columbus were therefore critical. Her entire future would depend on how well she was able to handle the tests and trials given to her. As the time for Ruby's arrival in Columbus approached, <clears throat> the usually unflappable Dr. McCracken became apprehensive. Yet there he was at Columbus's Union Station when the train pulled in at 7.30 p.m. on Friday, June 17, 1927. Dr. McCracken would remember it vividly. I stood at the top of the stairway in the main waiting room, my enthusiasm at a very low ebb. Then Ruby appeared, running all the way up the stairs. She gave me a big smile and said, Dr. McCracken, my, but am I glad to see you. Really, I was glad to see her too and to finally meet Miss Becker, the woman who was accompanying her, in person. But I was still dreading the next few days. Ella Becker said she wanted to hear Ruby sing once more before she went home to Mansfield. Dr. McCracken suspected that Becker's real desire was to see where Ruby would be living and the people with whom she'd be living. Together, the three made the short drive to the McCracken home at 172 East Lane Avenue, just north of Ohio State's sprawling campus. By the way, the home that Ruby Elsie lived in is still there. So the McCracken house at 172 is still existing today, but I think it's like, like now an apartment for six or eight students, so <clears throat> not for one family. Ruby had brought along some music, and with Mrs. McCracken to the piano, she sang several numbers. Afterwards, Ruby and Miss Becker went upstairs to see the room where Ruby would be staying. Once they were alone, Dr. McCracken turned to his wife. Cleo McCracken was a conservatory-trained musician who, in addition to being a fine accompanist herself, had heard many of the great singers of the day in person. Well, what do you think, McCracken asked her. I never heard such a voice in my life, she said. Dr. McCracken smiled. Ruby had passed her first important test. And uh, then, so uh, the next day, Ruby, so Ruby stays with the McCracken. She stays in the attic. And the next day, she's going to sing, even though she's arrived late at night, she has to sing the next morning for Dr. Royal Hughes. Hughes Hall, just across the way here, the School of Music is named for Dr. Royal D. Hughes. Royal Hughes was the man who in 1925 found what was then the Department of Music at Ohio State. It was a part of the College of Education. It was not a school of music until 1949. <clears throat> Dr. Hughes was only 54 when he died of a massive heart attack driving on his way to work one day in 1938. And so the decision was made after that uh, that the, when they did build the School of Music as a separate building that it would be named for Dr. Hughes and, and that's as you see it today. At the time that Ruby first came here of course, Wexner Center and Mershon were not there. Um, the 
Department of Music was at the corner. There was the armory here. In fact, the Wexner Center is built to resemble the armory. And the School of Music was, was just uh, to the uh, north of it on the corner of 15th and High, basically. And it had been the home of the president. But the president then moved to the house, which is on Mirlik, which today is the Honors House. So, so some of these buildings are still here. Some are, are gone. But, but basically, we're, we're all... Uh, we're all on ground which Ruby Elsie has trod at one time. At 9 a.m. sharp on Saturday morning, Dr. Royal Hughes arrived in the McCracken House, a huge, balding man with eyeglasses. Hughes was the director of Ohio State's Department of Music, which he had established only two years before. Like McCracken, Hughes held a doctoral degree from Harvard. It would be Royal Hughes who decided whether or not Ruby Elsie had the talent to enter his fledgling music program at Ohio State. Ruby entered the parlor, neatly dressed in the simple school uniform she'd worn at Russ College. Once again, accompanied by Mrs. McCracken, Ruby began by singing several spirituals. Hughes closed his eyes as he listened to her. When Ruby finished her second song, Hughes smiled and nodded his approval to McCracken. But the smile left his face quickly when Ruby announced her next selection, The Shadow Song, an aria in French from the Meyerbeer opera Dinora. Hughes turned to Dr. McCracken and whispered, impossible. There's no way a girl's had no vocal training who can't even read music and sing such a difficult piece. Ruby began to sing. The aria was difficult. Ruby had learned it by listening over and over to a recording by one of her favorite singers, the great metropolitan opera soprano, Amelie de Gallicurci. Yes, Ruby's performance did not have the fame, divas, finesse, and polish. The French diction was less than flawless. But the aria was suited perfectly to Ruby's clear and vibrant tone and to her instinctive ability to act with her voice. Hughes could not believe his ears. He took over from Mrs. McCracken at the piano and accompanied Ruby through the remainder of her songs. She sang one hymn that required the voice at one point to drop a full octave. When Ruby came to the point of that song, that point in the song, Hughes stopped playing until Ruby struck the low note. Her pitch was dead on. Afterwards, McCracken walked Hughes back to his house a block away. Hughes told McCracken there were many obstacles that lay ahead. Ruby was only 19, too young for anyone to make a prediction of future success. She lacked musicianship and could not read a note of music. But her voice had convinced Hughes. <coughs> he told McCracken, if she remains in Columbus, I'll teach her privately of no cost, even if we can't get her enrolled in the university. <coughs> So Ruby has convinced a Dr. Hughes. They do get her into Ohio State University. She enters in September 1927 in the sophomore class. Um, Ohio State did allow her to take credit for the freshman year, even though, again, one of the reasons Dr. McCracken was at Rust <coughs> was to help bring it up to modern educational standards. It was not accredited. However, he implored Ohio State to let Ruby come in as a sophomore, taking full credit for the courses she had taken in her freshman year at Rust. So they did do that. So she was able to get in because they wanted, obviously, since finances were a consideration, they wanted her to be able to, to graduate in as short a time as possible. So Ruby did, and she was very, uh, she was an excellent student. She ultimately learned how to play the piano, to read music, to compose. She also began singing here. Dr. McCracken was very judicious. He would have her sing, you know, for educators and other small groups, um, partly to encourage organizations like the Rotary Club, et cetera, to uh, 
to make contributions and in fact you know they did start money started to come in and and in fact uh, <coughs> um, she uh, she had uh, by the end of her first month she had $35 in her savings account which was a huge sum at that point. Um, I want to talk here a little bit about because one of the things you know that that Ruby had to face all her life was prejudice because at this point it, it, Ruby died in 1943. Blacks did not enter the Metropolitan Opera until 1955 when Marian Anderson made her historic debut. One of, the, one of the things which Ruby Elsie and other gifted performers of her era had to face was the fact that you know, there, was, there was a definite ceiling. You know, they could go so far and not beyond because of, of the fact that even if they had the talent, they could not you know, perform in houses where, where the doors were closed to blacks. But the interesting thing was that Ruby <coughs> found that uh, prejudice not only existed in the Deep South, but in the North as well, and in fact right here in Columbus, Ohio. <coughs> in October 1927, Mary Ruth McCracken celebrated her ninth birthday. Mrs. McCracken was still weak from her recent illness, so Ruby and Janet took charge in preparing an elaborate meal, followed by cake and ice cream with all the trimmings. When they had finished, Dr. McCracken announced a special treat, he was taking everyone downtown to catch a stage show and a movie at the Palace Theater, the same Palace Theater that's there today. Mrs. McCracken remained at home resting while everyone else piled into the family car for the short ride downtown. When they arrived at the theater, Ruby stayed with the children while Dr. McCracken bought the tickets. They went up to the ticket taker who let Dr. McCracken and the children in. But when Ruby presented her ticket, he refused. No colors allowed, he said. Dr. McCracken immediately protested, then tried the tactic that it had worked when Ella Becker brought Ruby on the train. She's our children's maid, Dr. McCracken said. She should be allowed in with our family. But it was no use. The man said it was the theater's strict policy to exclude blacks for evening performances. Ruby could not even sit in the upper balcony, the section of the theater where blacks were usually relegated. The McCracken children were now joining in a loud protest against the ticket taker. They had all become fiercely protective of Ruby, and if they could not go in, if she could not go in, they wouldn't either. <clears throat> the box office manager ended up refunding Dr. McCracken's money, and the family headed back to the car. The doctor and the children were all upset. Ruby, as at this point, had not said anything. Things seemed to get only worse when the car would not start. It's one of the crankers. Dr. McCracken, try Dr. McCracken tried several times with no luck and it looked as if they might have to catch the streetcar home. Then Ruby spoke up for the first time. Well, maybe this car just objects to having a nigga in it, she said with a big smile. Her remark broke the tension and everyone burst out laughing. It even seemed to help the car. When Dr. McCracken tried the starter again, the engine turned over and they went home. Dr. McCracken later recalled, we all felt so sorry for Ruby. I had never dreamed she would be refused admission, even when she was with our family. After we got home, we decided to put on a show of our own. Ruby was not barred from this one. In fact, she was the star. Several years later, she would be singing to audiences in Columbus, the size of which would make any theater manager turn green with envy. Dr. McCracken knew that racism and bigotry were not confined to the South. There was plenty of it in the North as well. But until he began to help Ruby Elsie, Dr. McCracken had full, come to fully appreciate the ugliness and injustice that blacks in America were forced to endure as part of daily life. 
As sorry though as Dr. McCracken felt for Ruby, he knew that prejudice was something she would have to deal with throughout her life. And deal with him she did, in ways that McCracken came to admire. He said, no one seemed to sense more keenly than Ruby how important it was that she be able to deal with those who objected to her because of her race. To me, she possessed three great qualities which helped her to do that. First, she had a marvelous sense of humor coupled with an engaging personality that made her instantly likable. Second, she had a brilliant mind and an ability to analyze people and situations quickly and accurately. Third, and most important, she possessed that unique gift which was hers alone and which enabled her to break down almost any barrier, her voice. So Ruby has encountered prejudice. She ultimately graduates in 1930 from Ohio State University. Sight unseen, she is given a Rosenwald Fellowship to go to the Juilliard School in New York. She does that in 1930. She begins her professional career. The week she gets in New York, she auditions for a Broadway show and is cast. Uh, right away. So it's almost improbable the great successes that she starts to have. She begins singing on network radio. She made her radio debut on WOSU in February 1929, right before her 21st birthday. So that's something, you know, again, the university can, can claim very, very uh, wonderfully that, uh, that at a time when there weren't a great number of blacks at Ohio State, that there was this young woman who had such a singular distinguished career. And of course, then the ultimate in 1935, George Gershwin, the great composer, uh, decides that he has been wanting to write an uh, American opera. He does not want to do an imitation of European operas, which most American composers have done. He wants to find an authentic American theme. And he believes he finds it when he reads the 1925 book Porgy by a southern writer by the name of DuBose Hayward. As it so happens, DuBose Hayward is the screenwriter for the screen version of The Emperor Jones, which Ruby Elsie makes her film debut opposite Paul Robeson in 1933. Right after that, Hayward and Gershwin come to terms. They decide that they will work together to produce an American folk opera based on Porgy. And, uh, and DuBose Hayward recommends that Ruby Elsie sing for George Gershwin. She sings one song at Gershwin's penthouse in Riverside Drive, and he offers her the role of Serena, which is second only to Bess in terms of the important women's roles in Porgy Bess. And he writes for her, writes for her probably the most difficult and demanding song in the show, My Man's Gone Now, which is sung by the character of Serena after her husband has been murdered in a crap game. And she's at the wake and, and his body is laid out and they have a saucer on his chest where people are coming by and putting money in to get enough money to bury him. And uh, so it's a very uh, powerful scene and, and it was perfectly meant for Ruby Elsie's dramatic abilities. Two months before Porgy and Bess premiered in September 1935, George Gershwin decided that he would, he would take his uh, principal singers into the CBS studios. At that time he was doing a CBS radio series. He had just finished the orchestration for Porgy and Bess and he wanted to hear what his music sounded like with orchestra. So he took Ruby Elsie, Todd, uh, Todd Duncan, and Ann Brown, who were the original Porgy and Bess, into the studio with several others to, um, to rehearse the numbers. And it was recorded by the CBS engineer who was there. So I'm going to play you a little excerpt of Ruby Elsie singing My Man's Gone Now, the song that George Gershwin wrote for her. And what you hear at the beginning is the voice of George Gershwin, who introduces this song 
and also is conducting the orchestra. So this is July 1935. Okay, and I gotta find out where it is. Oh, it's number one. Now we have a song by uh, Miss Ruby Elsie in the second act, scene one, called My Man Is Gone Now. I'm sorry, it's in scene two, scene two, act one.
Ruby Elsie would do 806 performances as Serena. She was in the original New York production in 1935, the first West Coast revival in 1938. The production which really established its success in 1942, the Cheryl Crawford production and all of the tours that surrounded those. She dreamed of a career on the operatic stage. She was to make her grand opera debut in the role of Aida in 1944. So she wrapped up the Porgy and Bess tour on June the 19th, 1943 in Denver. She had been diagnosed with a benign tumor of the uterus. She had put off surgery until the tour was over. She went back to Detroit where she had seen the doctor who had, was going to perform the surgery. She checked into the hospital. The surgery was done on June the 26th, 1943. Something happened in the recovery room. Ruby Elsie died. She was 35 years of age. Consequently, as the decades passed, uh, she was forgotten, as I've mentioned, uh, except, for, except for lines or two, a paragraph at most in books about Gershwin or Porgy and Bess or musical theater. Um, she was overlooked. <coughs> But that started to change, and in the last chapter of my book, I talked about that. Ruby Elsie dreamed of a career as an opera singer. In 800 performances as Serena, in Porgy and Bess, she became, she was, a true opera singer, a pioneer black diva whose talents and artistry would help pave the way for those who would follow her. <coughs> Excuse me and singers like Leontine Price, Kathleen Battle. Singers today now, there is no color barrier in, in opera anymore. And it was because of people like Ruby Elsie who paved the way. In 1998, the centennial of George Gershwin's birth, the 1937 Hollywood Bowl Memorial Concert was released on CD for the first time. The Pulitzer Prize winning music critic Lloyd Schwartz, reviewing for the Boston Phoenix, said that one of the CD's highlights was Ruby Elsie, the first and the best Serena in a hair-raising My Man's Gone Now, which she never got to record commercially. The ultimate tribute came on April 1st, 2000 at a gala ceremony in Jackson, Mississippi. Ruby Elsie was named by her native state as one of the first 25 inductees into the Mississippi Music Hall of Fame, part of an illustrious roster that also included Leontine Price, William Grant Still, B.B. King, Tammy Wynette, and the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, who incidentally was born 15 miles away from where Ruby was. Sadly, many of those closest to Ruby did not live to see the honors and recognition she is receiving. Um, her husband, Jack Carr, her second husband, she was married twice, her second husband only outlived her by a few years. He died at the age of 50. He was a, a very talented uh, black opera singer named Jack Carr. He died in 1951 at the age of 50. Her mother did, however, outlive her by many years. She died in, in April 1995, a few weeks before her 99th birthday. <clears throat> and as I said, you know, her sisters um, just passed away in the last half dozen years. I did get the opportunity to meet with both of them. Ruby Elsie's final resting place lies at the top of a gentle knoll not far from the little house on Churchill where she was born. The house, now long, now long gone, where Ruby as a child neatly folded the warm clothes which Mama had just ironed for the white families in town and listened intently to her grandmother tell her the stories of her people and taught her the songs that she would love so much and sing all her life. The stone monument over Ruby's grave bears an inscription, the epitaph written by her mother, Emma. 
Ruby Elsie, February 20th, 1908, June 26th, 1943, now singing in the Celestial Choir. So thank you. Does anyone have any questions at all for me or comments or obviously? Yes. She had a different voice. Uh, Marian Anderson, of course, was a mezzo, first of all, and Ruby was a soprano. <clears throat> Marian had a darker, richer sound. And again, she was much more accomplished in, in concert type of singing. They were both great at spirituals. Ruby was billed, in fact, as one of the great interpreters of the Negro spiritual. But Ruby was much more, was much more um, adept at singing music of the stage, whereas Marian Anderson's strength was in the art song, the German art song, the German leader. And uh, so, uh, so I think, you know, they're both two very distinctive and different uh, singers. It is unfortunate that so many of the singers of that era, um, Anne Brown, the original Bess, whom, whom I talk to every few months and is now uh, 94 years old and has lived in Oslo, Norway since the late 1940s, Anne said, had there just been Marian Anderson and Paul Robeson, you know, the, the barrier would never have been broken. She said the barrier was broken because there were so many of us who were good. So many of us who, who could have and should have been doing things, you know, but we couldn't. And, and her comment was, Gershwin did such a wonderful service to the black singers in creating Porgy and Bess because, even though it's, it, it's criticized as being very stereotypical now and, you know, a, 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 a typically old-fashioned portrait of, of Negro life, of black life, <coughs> But as she said, the Metropolitan Opera originally had asked, had invited Gershwin to write Porgy and Bess for them. But he said, I will only do it if I can have a black cast. And they said no. And, and you know, because when they did the Emperor Jones at the Met by Louis Grunberg, the classical composer, it was Lawrence Tibbett in blackface. And Gershwin said, I don't want Lawrence Tibbett in blackface. I want a black actor to play Porgy, I want a black actress, you know. And so he auditioned and handpicked the cast that he had. And Ruby Elzey was one of the four performers that Gershwin personally handpicked. He picked Todd Duncan and Ann Brown to create the roles of Porgy and Bess. Ruby created the role of Serena. And John Bubbles, who was actually the non, only non-trained singer in the cast, I mean, it was a wonderfully trained cast of singers. John Bubbles was a veteran um, vaudeville performer, and he created the role of Sport and Life, the, the dope peddler who sings It Ain't Necessarily So that was then played in the film version by Sammy Davis Jr. So. He's a famous tap dancer. Yes, Buck and Bubbles. He was part of one of the great uh, teams. Uh, and in fact, uh, his partner, um, <coughs> Ford Buck, was also in Porgy and Best playing one of the smaller character roles. So, Anyone else? Yes. Oh, mom, oh, his, his, co that was his college, yes. He was actually from Bell Fountain, Ohio, so, so, and there are still some Krakens up in Bell Fountain, I, I understand and stuff, so, but, but the, for most part, the family, it, after Dr. McCracken went down there, it was very fortuitous that I found them. I literally got to this story just in time. Uh, I, I tell people and everything, sometimes I share, I'll share with you all. <coughs> when I first went to Pontotoc, Mississippi, the little town where Ruby Elsie was born and where she's buried. 
and I found her grave and I read her epitaph. The first thing I did was I, I kind of kneeled down and I ran my hand across her name and I said, I'm here. Because that's exactly how I felt. I felt like, you know, you know, you brought me here. I mean, I felt like this story was a story that, you know, had to be told. And for some reason, you know, you know, why did I take such an interest in just this casual comment that Madge Guthrie made and, and take it and do something? And, and uh, Madge was just amazed at how many things that I found out. And she said, I, I never dreamed that you would find as much as you did. Or even she said, I, I had no appreciation that Ruby had had the career she had. I mean, not just Porgy and Bess, but I mean, five motion pictures, uh, Emperor Jones with Paul Robeson, Birth of the Blues with Bing Crosby, in which she sings St. Louis Blues. Um, concerts, radio stars. She was a regular on an NBC program called The Melody Master. Um, so, so she really had, given the limitations of the time, she really had a wonderful career. In fact, I want to read one little segment here about, you know, one of the little things of, of, an, of her career in radio. <coughs> when she was under contract to a, to a CBS. And uh, where did it, 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 it. This is an interesting comment. Uh -huh. Oh, <clears throat> Ruby's radio career was moving into high gear, but not without difficulties, as she explained in a letter to the McCrackens. I've had two broadcasts since October 13th, with another coming up Tuesday night, December 15th at 10.30. Please listen, it's on CBS. They're trying to do something for me at CBS because they have me signed up to a contract for three months. But it seems impossible with me singing the type of things I sing. You know, they always want Negroes to sing blues or hot songs, and I can't do that. But they've been honest about everything and as nice as they can be. Hopefully, I'll get a break soon. So here she was. I mean, she's this gifted black. And they're, they're trying again, you know, because their idea is, you know, like all black singers sing this kind of music, you know. And there really wasn't a great number, you know, of classically trained black sopranos at that point, you know, who were singing the kind of repertoire that she did. So, so she always kind of ran into those kind of dilemmas throughout her career up to the time that she died. I do believe, because two years after her death, her friend Todd Duncan, who the original Porgy, broke the color barrier at the New York City Opera, which opened in 1944, and which almost from the beginning, because it just had a different, it, it had a, um, a manager who was a great admirer and, and promoter of black talent. And, and he had Todd Duncan sing the role of Amanazaru and Aida, and several other roles. So, Todd broke the color barrier at the New York City Opera in 1945. Marian Anderson broke the color barrier at the Met in 1955. I have to believe, had Ruby Elsie lived five, ten more years, she would very likely have been one of those first black singers who made it into the mainstream opera companies and therefore would then be much better known than she is. Yes? Uh, yes, there is actually um, there is actually a, a, a CD which I put together. Um, this is a CD which Arnett Howard and I did together locally. There is now a first ever commercial CD that I produced for Cambria Music. And if you go online, Ruby Elsie in Song, Cambria. Uh, Google that and you will find the CD and you can and order it online. There are no local venues where it is available. Um, and as far as my book, you can order it. Uh, Black Diva of the 30s is available Amazon.com. Uh, Barnes & Noble um, in the Upper Arlington at least had several copies because when I did my first book launching, um, they handled books and they've, they've pretty much seemed to carry books. And of course, as, 
as Donna was saying, there are several copies here in OSU libraries. There is one at the uh, Lawrence and Lee Theater Research Institute, which was a great help to me. I don't know how many of you know this, but they have one of the great collections of materials about the original production of Porgy and Bess because Bob Waxman, who was the PR guy for that um, and was an instrumental man in Ruby Elsie's career, Bob Waxman, when, before he died, left all of his papers, including all about Porgy and Bess, to the Theater Research Institute. There's also a copy in the OSU Music and Dance Library and then one in the General Library, um, the Thompson Library. So there are several places where on campus you can, you can read the book or you can get it. Um, and there are six copies in the Columbus Metro Library as well. So. My pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.